Well, good morning. Glad to be with you on this Sunday morning. Uh, I think all of us have had things in our lives. We've had to do things in our lives that we didn't want to do. So maybe it was a presentation you had to give. Maybe it was a conversation that you had to have. Maybe your wife or your husband or your spouse drug, drug you to something that you didn't want to do. Right? We've all had things we didn't want to do. Uh, we have two kids, Finley, who's four and a half, our daughter, and Roman, who's one and a half, our son, Roman's awesome. He's also 100 miles an hour all the time. And so there are many times where he's going crazy, and we say, Finley, go play with your brother. And she says, I don't want to. And I say, well, guess what? I'm your dad, so you have to do it, right? We all have things we don't want to do. Uh, why do I say that? Uh, because this morning we are looking at a biblical text uh, that when I first read it, I said, nope, don't want to teach that. In fact, one commentator said the text that we are going to read this morning is the most complex controversial, and opaque text in all of the New Testament. So I love my job. Uh, and I, I really do love my job. This is a little bit difficult. Here's what I, my promise to you, that unless you have been a part of a church in your past that has preached through the book of 1 Corinthians, like we are doing, you have never in your life ever heard this text taught. You've never heard this text taught. And so what I want to do before, normally how we do this is we kind of read a few verses, explain it, apply it, that sort of thing. I just want to read all of it to you up front, and then we'll get into it so you can have some sort of idea of what I'm saying. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can grab it. If not, there's a black one around if you want to read along with us. Uh, 1 Corinthians was written by this guy named Paul within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to the church in Corinth, which is modern-day Greece, basically explaining to them how the gospel impacts every area of their lives. And so we're in chapter 11 this morning, and here's what he says. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, dishonors her head since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for, her, for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too is woman the glory of man. All right, verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, whatever that means. Verse 11, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray uh, to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you? That if a man has long hair, it is to his is a disgrace to him. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Uh, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. And so welcome to New City Church. Here's what's interesting. <laughs> we... <laughs> We kicked off our Thursday night services this week. As we say all the time, we want to do whatever we can to play our part in Raleigh to help as many people as possible meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. But to prove to you that we're really about Jesus and not just about our numbers, we teach texts like this 
because it shows up on, you know, the beginning of September, our thir- first Thursday night service. If it's there, we got to do it. And so uh, a couple of things real quick. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different than what I normally do. Normally, I try to kind of study these things and kind of preach, kind of share with you a few interesting notes, but then also kind of apply it practically to our lives today. Uh, this, because I don't think you've ever heard this taught before. I have never spent much time studying it before now. It's going to feel a little bit more like a Bible study. So I'm going to be teaching probably about 80% of the time. And then at the end, I'll try to apply it. But because there's so much confusion of what's actually going on here. Again, it's going to have a different feel. I have notes with me, which I don't normally do, um, but stick with me. I'm going to apply it at the end, and I will not answer all your questions, but hopefully we can make some sense of what Paul is saying here. Now, the context behind what Paul is addressing is he's this, starting at chapter 11 and the next few passages that we'll read over the next few weeks, he's specifically talking about the context and worship services. So when the church gathers together, what are some things that we should do? What are some things that we should uh, uh, avoid? And what makes this text even more difficult to preach is that he is essentially calling out some of the women in the church, which in our culture today, we don't normally do. Like, for example, I could stand up here and I have no problem telling guys to get their stuff together, guys stop being a loser, do this or do that, right? I have no problem doing that. But Paul is essentially doing that to women. And in our culture, we don't normally do that sort of thing, so it can make it a little bit awkward. But that is what's happening here. Uh, And we also need to understand that this is a corrective text. Now, what makes something like this difficult is that the church in Corinth would have known exactly what Paul was referring to. We do not. We can do our best of our ability to understand the historical context of what was going on, but we don't know exactly what is happening that Paul is addressing. Um, We don't know all the details. And so while some of this is hard to understand, there are still principles that we can glean from it, even if we can't make sense of fully everything that is going on. Now, lastly, the question is this, why is Paul calling out women? Uh, We're going to see, especially in this chapter and in chapter 14 in a few weeks, that there is a few of the women were doing some things that were distracting. So this week has to do with head coverings and not wearing head coverings, and a few weeks has to do with talking and being distracting. Uh, We don't know all the details, but what he's doing is he's correcting something chaotic, which is really important for us to know that he is not just explaining something in a vacuum for fun, right? There is something going on that he is addressing, which is why it is so important for us to understand the context in which a scripture is written. Because you could read stuff like this and say, well, we don't wear, and we'll get into this, women don't wear head coverings anymore, so are we picking and choosing? Or in the Old Testament, you know, the the Israelites weren't supposed to wear uh, clothes that had two different fabrics, and we do that, and Christians eat bacon, and so are we picking and choosing? That's not what we're doing. It just takes a little bit of study to understand what is applicable to us and what isn't. And so that being said, the context of this, if you were here last week, Paul had just uh, talked about the freedoms and the liberties that we have in Christ, that as followers of Jesus, as long as we are refraining from sin, we actually have a lot of freedoms to do a lot of things that we want to do. And last, last week, he said that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, and not everything builds up. And that is extremely relevant for what he's talking about here, because he is going to be addressing an issue that some of the men and women that were doing that are not sinful in and of themselves, but in the context in which they live, they did not build up, did not encourage, they did not love other people. And that is what he's saying here, that although what you're doing may not be sinful, if you're a follower of Christ, we need to ground everything that we are doing in what builds up and what loves other people. And so with that being said, let's try to make sense of what Paul is saying here. Here he starts in verse 2. He says this, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, 
and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, traditions here could be communion, uh, the gospel of who Jesus is, baptisms. He's saying, hey, good job. You're doing a lot of things great. Even in your worship gatherings, a lot of things are going well, but I'm going to address something that's not so much. So that was the easy part. The rest of this gets interesting. Verse 3, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So what Paul is doing here is he is referring to the order of creation, the order of creation. Now, uh, when he talks about men and women in Christ, in other words, he's saying this, God, God, the Father, God, the Son, the Holy Spirit have existed for eternity past. And in the story of creation, what happens that man is created first, and then woman is created after man. Now, what makes this difficult here is that although men and women may have some sorts of different functions, they do not have a different value. Different function does not equal different value, as we'll see. And his point here is this, that just as Jesus Christ the Son as co-equal has existed forever with God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son does submit to the Father and follow God the Father's will. They have a different function, but same value. Now, what makes this text even more confusing is there is debate around what Paul means by head and who is Paul referring to when he says man and woman. So, for example, it says men and women. He's talking about men and women here. Some translations actually translate this husband and wife. So, is he talking about men and women in general or is he talking about husbands and wives? So that's one question when he talks about men and women. Who is he talking about? The second question is when it says head. So the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The word for head was kephele, which could mean one of two things. It could mean the authority over. So if you are the head of, you have the authority over. Or it could mean the source of. So it could mean that, that men have the authority over women, or maybe husbands have the authority over wives, or it could be simply going back to the creation story that, that, that men were the source of God, essentially in the original creation story, and that women were the source of men. So there's a kind of difficulty in what is going on here. Now, I would say this, it does appear, and, and I think the general scholarly uh, consensus is that Paul is talking about husbands and wives, not men and women in general. And we'll see that in just a second, because here's what he says in verse 4. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is the one is having her, uh, one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off her head or her head shaved, let her head be covered. So let me just explain what's going on with this whole head covering thing and why it seems to be that Paul is referring to husbands and wives specifically, because head coverings in this first century context uh, were designated for women that showed that they were married. You wore a head covering if you were married. So Paul's concern here, what's interesting is that we might, on the surface level, read this text and, and say, well, this seems a little regressive. This seems a little uh, patriotic. I don't even know if that, that's a word, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like, eh, what Paul's actually saying here, if you were a first century Jew or non-Jew, you would actually think the exact opposite. Because Paul's issue here is not that, that the women were praying and prophesying in the assembly and the worship service. That was not his issue. The, worship, the, the issue was how they were doing it. In other words, there seemed to be women who were taking off their head coverings in the worship gatherings when they were praying and when they were prophesying. So this is actually quite amazing as a side note, that Paul is actually elevating and equal equalizing the giftedness and the contributions of 
women. In other words, he is saying that women should pray and they should speak into other people's lives. His concern is not what they are doing, but how they are doing it, because apparently doing it without their heads covered, those that were married, were a distraction and were, were taking away from what was actually going on in the worship service. In other words, you can think of it like this. It's kind of like an interruption. It's kind of like, it's not necessarily, again, not necessarily a sinful thing to not wear a head covering, but in that context, if a non-believer were to walk into the worship gathering, because that was kind of the cultural norm, they would look at that and be like, man, I don't, what, what's going on here? Like, why is some of the women doing this? But what happened is, even though what they're doing is not sinful, it's taking away from building up and encouraging those in the room. So think of it like this, like for example, uh, setting up chairs, like we have to set up chairs on Sundays and it's great so we have places to sit. If, however, you were to wait until I started preaching and somebody were to come up here and set up a row of chairs, right, that's not nothing wrong with that, but that would be distracting, right? You'd be like, what's going on here? Like there's a time and place to do that. That's not when we're supposed to do it. It would kind of disrupt the flow of the service. Or maybe another example. Let's say you wanted to give the church a lot of money, and you just felt compelled that right now is the time that you would do it. So you would come up to the stage, and you just dump a, a, just a mound of cash right on the stage. That would be distracting. Now, that would be a good distraction, but that would be distracting, right? That's not the time and place to do it. Right? You can give online, or you can give in the giving boxes in the back of the auditorium or in the lobby. There's a time and place to do things that makes them not distracting. And so, again, to be clear, the problem is not what the women are doing. The problem is how some of them are going about doing it, which to the first century Jew and non-Jew, they would have thought the problem was that they were praying and prophesying at all, because in many of the synagogues, especially in that time, not only did men and women sit in separate uh, parts of the kind of the worship service thing, whatever they called it, uh, the women were not even allowed to speak. Like they wouldn't even say anything. Only the men were allowed to speak. So Paul is not saying don't do it. He's saying how you're doing it is important. And in fact, in Acts chapter 2, it does say that both men and women are to pray and prophesy. Again, the problem is not what, the problem is how. Uh, one scholar puts it this way, well, Richard Hayes, um, he, he says it like this, and he's a former Duke professor, so you know it's right. Uh, he says, Paul gives his teaching about head coverings for women not to restrict their participation in prayer and prophecy, but rather to enable them to perform these activities with dignity, avoiding distractions for people whose sensibilities were formed by their culture. In other words, think of it this way. How would this play out in our culture today? I don't think it's quite as strong as the first century head coverings, but you could, for example, think of a wedding ring, right? There, you have the freedom. You, if you're married, you do not have to wear a wedding, a wedding ring, right? It's not sinful not to wear it. However, I would say it is unwise not to wear one, right? Unless you're getting it resized or you lost it and you're waiting another one. Uh, generally speaking, it would be unwise not to wear a wedding ring. Or maybe go a step further. Let's say Christina was out somewhere sometime and some guy came up to her, my wife, and started talking to her and started flirting to her, flirting with her. She could end the conversation or walk away, or what, what if she instead took off her wedding ring, put it in her pocket, and engaged that conversation, right? That would be something that would be dishonorable to me as her husband. Of course, it would go the opposite way as well, but it would be dishonorable to say, hey, I'm married, but I'm going to pretend by taking off this wedding ring that I am not. And that is the kind of the cultural setting of what would have happened after, with when the women would have taken off their head coverings, although they were married, they would have been acting like they weren't. And so here's Paul's point, especially knowing with what is going on in the culture, especially that in our freedoms in Christ, our ultimate goal is to build up one another. Here's his point, that culturally, this is how they lived. 
that women in that culture, when they were married, wore some sort of head covering. Now, how can, and his point is this, how can you and I reach people for Jesus if, if, we don't, if, if unbelievers come in, they don't understand what's going on, and they're getting confused by people doing whatever they want, right? Paul's point is this, that love is the most important thing. Even though you have the freedom to act however you want, if it is distracting, if it's pe- taking people's attention away from God and his glory and on us, then we are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're not uh, exhibiting and showing love to one another. That's why this head covering is such a big deal in this context. And so if we continue reading at ch- uh, verse 7, here's what he now says next. He says, A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So real quick, what is happening here is that Paul is now moving to what is sh- from what is shameful, what we should not do, to what is glorious or what gives other people honor. And this is why, according to Paul, our head matters, and not just our physical head, but our spiritual head. And there's a little bit of a play on words when he uses this word head repeatedly. In other words, both men and women, or specifically in this context, both husbands and wives, are the glory of one another, but they are revealed in different ways. And this comes from the order of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And so his point here is saying that husbands should not uh, cover their head because they were uh, created in the glory or uh, in the image of God. In other words, there was Christ, God, the Holy Spirit. Man was made first, so he was the source of God, if you will. And secondly, women are the glory of men because according to the creation story, a woman was taken from a man. In other words, equal before God, but their creation story differs. Now, if that's confusing to you, and it might be, I want to read to you Genesis chapter 2, just a few verses. If you're like, what is the creation story even saying? Here's the creation account that Paul is referring to. Genesis chapter 2, it's on the screen. It says this, starting in verse 18. This is after God has created everything, uh, animals, man, everything is, is going well, but then there's a problem. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord uh, God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man, gives name, uh, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God uh, caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs, and he closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she is taken man. Now, two things real quick about what is happening in this context. First, a kind of a cursory reading. We don't actually understand how, how the significance of what this moment was like for Adam. In other words, when he sees this woman, when he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, what is actually happening here is there is this, this awe of excitement coming from Adam. Now, I don't have time to get into all that's going on there in the words in the Hebrew of how we know that to be the case, but there is a, an excitement coming from Adam, and the excitement is not just the fact that a woman has been created. 
although I'm sure that didn't hurt, right? His primary excitement was that he had an equal, that there was someone that could do for him and do with him what he could not do for himself. As in, in the creation stories, he's naming all the animals and he's seeing they have companions and they have things and other animals to help them do the things that they want to do. He says, I am all alone. I can't do what I'm supposed to do. What he's saying here is that I have not just a woman, but I have an equal, and there's an excitement in what is going on. Now, that's the first thing I think we, we miss when we see this. The second thing we can miss on a kind of a cursory reading is the word that is translated as helper. Uh, in our culture today, unfortunately, uh, we, when we think of helper, we kind of think of assistant. We kind of think of kind of second-class citizen. We kind of think of like, oh, well, she's the helper. He's going to go and do all the big boy things, and then if he needs a drink of water or if he needs to run an errand, he'll ask her to come along and do it. That's actually not at all how this is meant to be read. The original Hebrew, what the Old Testament was primarily written in, uh, the word from helper there is a Hebrew word uh, that is, or the Hebrew word azer. And a more literal translation of azer would be this. An azer is someone or something that does for someone what they cannot do for themselves. In other words, it's not that this person is just kind of like their assistant to come along and do things that they don't want to do. What it's saying here is that literally, apart from this woman, mankind, Adam, could not do anything that he was ultimately created to do. He needed a helper equal to him to accomplish what God wants to do through humanity. And we know that helper, that azer, is not meant to be a second-class thing or a description of the woman because repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, God is often called the azer for the Israelites or for specific uh, people at specific times, that God is our helper. Where does our help come from in the Psalms and other times and other places? It's meant to show us that we should not automatically assume that helper is an inferior position because we know that God is not inferior to Israel or to anyone one of us. The point of this text is that now there is an equal that man and woman together are going to accomplish and do things that they could not do on their own. Now, that being said, it does seem to be, at least it's my personal belief, that Scripture does say, again, part of this is the order of creation, that men are called to lead their families. They are called to leave and serve their wife and their kids. And part of the reason for this is the order of creation that we see Paul reference many times in other various passages. Now, there are, as a side note, and we won't get in, into it this morning, the question is, what do you mean by lead? And there's kind of debate there. There's kind of people trying to figure it out. As, as simple as I could say it, here's what I think Scripture says when, they told, when, they, when it explains to men to lead their families, that men are to sacrifice and lead by example of what it means to love and serve and care for their families. In other words, just like Jesus, as men are called to do in Ephesians 5, we lead our families by praying for them, by loving them, by serving for them. This does not mean that men make all the decisions. It does not mean that men are the best at everything that happens in the household because we know that is not true, but it does mean to the best of their abilities, they lead the way in sacrificing and loving their wives and their children. That is what Paul is going on here. They're equal, but sometimes the function plays out differently. And then again, in verse 10, he says this, this is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, just talking about how she was made from man. And then he says, because of the angels. Now, just to be honest, there's a lot of kind of confusion about what this actually means. I don't even know what it means, and so I could explain to you all the things that it could possibly mean, but it doesn't really have relevance to the point. Uh, to, for time's sake, we'll keep going, because here's the ultimate point of this. Here's ultimately the point, and I think this is ironic before I read the next verse, that again, 21st century, a light in mind, we look at this, and we think this might be regressive. First century, they look at this, and they might be like, 
no, this is too, I don't know if they would use this word, progressive, because here's the point that we miss out of what Paul's trying to say, verse 11. He says, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. Here's why. For just as woman came from man, right, the creation story, then this, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. In other words, men and women are codependent on each other. That although men were created first in the creation story, what has happened every, ever since Adam? Every single man that has ever existed has come from a woman. The point is, different function uh, plays out differently, but equal to one another. We are codependent on another. We, our, our creation story is different, but we are equal to one another. We have the same. Uh, we have, might have some different functions at different times, but there's no less than. There's no better than. They're equal, but different. And so here's how he concludes this section, verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other customs, nor do the churches of God. In other words, here's basically what he's saying. In light of everything that I have said to you, think critically about what you are doing. That there is freedom not to wear a head covering, but is it the most beneficial and loving thing that you can do in the context in which you live? I'll read one more quote for you. This is another scholar named Gordon Fee on this last part of this passage. He says this, for Paul, it is a question of propriety and of custom, which carries with it disgrace or glory. Hence, this is an appeal to the way things are, to the natural feeling that they share together as part of their contemporary culture. The goal, here's the goal about all of this. Remember, this has to do with the context of a worship service. The goal is not to distract people in corporate worship or to bring shame to God or one's spouse. In other words, acting like you're not married when you actually are. In other words, Paul's appeal in this unit to what is proper and to what is customary. In the context in which they live, what does it look like for us to lay aside our freedoms to love one another? Now, the question is, what does this mean for us? This may make it may, might be somewhat helpful. Okay, I kind of get this head covering thing. I still don't understand why, but that makes sense. The question is, what does this mean for us? So in the next few minutes, here's what I want to do. I want to try to make this practical as best that I can. Here's what I would say that we need to know, especially in the context for this text of what we need to take away, and that's this, that the mission doesn't change but the method does. In other words, the mission of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us and letting as many people know and experience him does not change. The gospel does not change. However, the method of how we go about doing that, how we go about spreading God's love does change in time and place. It doesn't mean we sin, but the culture that we live in determines what is sometimes acceptable for us to do and what is other times not. So I'm going to be clear. This is not about picking and choosing, right? Sometimes people say again with some of the Old Testament laws for the Israelites, or maybe if you just read this and say, well, women aren't wearing head coverings, you're just picking and choosing. No, let's just take a second and see what's going on so we can understand how this applies to our context. So let me just give you an example of how this would apply. Let's say somebody, some old country, I mean, the denomination doesn't matter, Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever, church, invited me to come preach at their church one Sunday. So let's say, okay, I go and do that. If I showed up to this old town country church, old town, small road, Baptist country church, whatever, wearing this, do you think that would get over well? Right? There's nothing sinful with what I'm wearing. I don't think it's very distracting, but in most traditional uh, small-town churches, 
You wear, especially if you're the pastor, a suit and tie. That's what you do. And so if I were to go into that context, having the freedom to wear this because this is not sinful, I don't believe, do you think people, many of those people might be staring at me the whole time and say, I ain't listening to him. I can't believe he's not wearing his Sunday best. This is dishonoring to God. Right now, here's the thing. You and I might look at that and be like, they need to get over it. It's not that big of a deal. What you're wearing does not matter. And that may or may not be true. I don't know, but that's not the point. Right? Paul's point here is that love for others supersedes our freedom. In other words, here is why you and I need to know that the mission doesn't change, but the method does. Because our rights come second to the mission. In other words, what you and I are allowed to do in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, comes second to the mission, which means sometimes we lay aside our rights that we have the freedom to do because we want people to know and love Jesus. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that our rights always restrict us. In other words, this does not mean that sometimes we have to keep things the way that they are. So let me just give you an example. Slavery. So, you know, 200 years ago in, in America, I could preach this text and someone could up, come to me, up to me after and say, this is why slavery needs to still happen because it's the way our, our country is operated. It's the culture that we live. Don't change that. It'll be distracting. Here's the point. Again, Paul's point behind all of this is love, is the dignity of human beings, is the dignity of men and women. And we know that the dignity of men and women means that we are all equal, that slavery is a grave injustice to God. And so here's where things get tricky. There are sometimes gray areas in how this plays out. There are times where in our culture, uh, something that we may not want to do means we still submit to it out of the good for other people. But there are other times in our culture where we actually buck up against the culture to change it for good. And I don't have an answer for every specific example, but we just need to understand that sometimes, again, as Christians, if love is our goal, we lay aside our freedoms so that people can experience love. And other times, we use that to push against what is happening. So again, for example, Martin Luther King sitting in jail, these white pastors are writing to him and say, hey, some of them even agree with what he's doing, but they say, hey, now's not the time. These protests, I'm not sure I'm down with that. You're kind of creating distractions, all that sort of thing. Right now, we would look back and say, no, what he was doing was right and good. So there are times where we submit to the customs of our culture, and there are other times out of love that we buck up against it. We just need to ask God and his spirit for discernment for when we do each one, because here's why that's important. Again, love for others should always supersede our freedom. It's not that we do what we want to do because we can. We do what is the best for my neighbor decides what we should do. And what's interesting is this section, uh, 1 Corinthians can be broken up into about four sections. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which you are all familiar with, even if you've never read it, if you've been to a wedding, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, right? That is 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, that chapter uh, begins with this section. Now, when we get there in a few weeks, Paul's point is love sounds, everyone loves love, right, until you have to do something that makes you uncomfortable. That if we really believe that love is the most important thing, then we will lay Lay down our freedoms so that other people can experience that. In other words, here's what I would say we need to do from this text that might be somewhat difficult to understand. I think here's what this practically means for us. That you and I need to lay aside our rights for the good of others. Lay aside our rights for the good of others. I don't know, family-wise, friend-wise, coworker-wise, fellow students, what does that look like for you to lay aside what you have the freedom to do, what you can do, what you can say, to say, I'm not going to do what I want to do. I'm going to lay aside my rights for the betterment of other people so that they can experience Jesus as well. Now, because I'm your pastor and I want to lead by example, 
Let me give you an example of a time that I did this, that I lay aside my God-given rights to, to, for the good of others. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a month or two ago, Christina and our two kids went out of town, and it was awesome. And it was awesome, not because my wife was gone, but because, you know, my kids are awesome. But it's like, for two days, I got to go home and do nothing. I don't got to change no diaper. I don't got to entertain anything. I can just sit there. And so what I did was I rearranged our living room. And so let me just show you a picture of what I did when they went out of town. Here's a picture of it. Now, you might be like, what's going on? If you're a woman, you might be like, what's going on? If you're a man, you're like, I know exactly what's going on. What happened was our, our main couch right there, I had changed it 90 degrees so that I could lay down and watch the TV. That's what I did. It was against the wall. I lay down. Because, like, we don't, it's just, with our living room, a lazy boy doesn't work, and our TV's kind of high, so I immediately came home, changed the couch, laid down. It was awesome. Now, what do you think I did the moment she came home? I laid aside my rights and put it back. Now, why do I do this? Right Here's the thing. In my house... It's my property. I can do what I want. I bought the stupid thing. But it is, this is not conducive. Like, we host our community group at our house. This won't work. Let's all just stare at the wall and talk to each other. Like, that's not going to happen, right? And so what happens is I laid, my, laid aside my rights to put the couch the way I want to do it so that it is not awkward for people when they come over that we can actually have a discussion for or with one another. And I know this is an silly example, but this is what this means, that we lay aside what we have every right to do because we love God and we want other people to experience it as well. And ultimately, here is why. Here is why we lay aside our rights for the good of others. And it's our mission statement that's on the wall right there. To help people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. If you are a follower of Christ, this is why we do this. That we don't pursue our happiness above all costs. We don't do whatever we want to do that makes us happy no matter how it may affect other people. That as followers of Christ, we lay aside our rights to help people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. Why? Because of the gospel. And this is the gospel, that Jesus did this for us. One of the amazing things about God and about Jesus, about Christianity, is that God never asks us to do something that he doesn't do himself. That Jesus laid aside his rights as the king of the world, of all the power and all the worship and all the glory. He comes to earth in the form of a human being, is rejected, is despised. He gave up everything, not because he needed anything from us, but simply because he loves us. And the invitation is that anyone who would love and follow and trust in Jesus in the midst of your doubts and your mess-ups and your screw-ups and your hang-ups, all these things that you and I get it wrong every single day, in the midst of all of that, you and I can receive the goodness and the forgiveness of Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord. The gospel is that Jesus is in our place. The gospel, as we say it often here at New City, is that because of Jesus, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. And it's not because of you. It's because he laid aside everything that he had for the good of us. That is why we do it as well. And ultimately, here's, as I close, here's really the point, I think, of this text. Even though there's questions, we may not know exactly everything that's going on in this context, I think this is the point of what Paul's trying to say, and that's this. That the gospel is spread when believers value loving their neighbor over loving themselves. The gospel is spread when believers value loving their neighbors over loving themselves. Now, let me just be honest with you. You could be like, okay, I get that, but that seems like the head, the head covering thing, that seems kind of oppressive. I, I don't know. You may be right, you may be wrong. I have no idea. But in this context, what is Paul saying? We're going to lay aside our freedoms for the love of our neighbor over what we have every right as a follower of Christ to do. 
that you and I are free, as long as we are not sinning, to pursue our passions and our desires and the things that we want, but it should never come in front of loving other people. If we want to see people meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him, if you want to see some of your friends or your family or your coworkers meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him, it does not happen by you going to Bible school and having a lot of knowledge to out-debate them. That ain't never going to work. It happens by you and I laying down our lives, loving them the way Christ has loved us so that they might be able to experience a glimpse of what Christ has done for us and will ultimately change their hearts to him. Again, the gospel is spread when believers value loving their neighbor over loving themselves. Let's pray.